Hello, 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 hello. <laughs> hello, bit of a different opener to this week's episode. That was, in fact, England under 21 international and on loan Swansea City striker Rian Brewster saying hello into my microphone when we met up at the Elevate app launch at the end of last year. He's not on this week's pod to disappoint everyone. Uh, I've only just got around to uploading the interview to my laptop, which is why it's debuting on episode 19. Um, we will make sure to get him on here one day, just to assure you all it was in fact him. Anyway, with Rian's brief introduction explained in full, let's get down to business. As always, I'm Joe Donoghue and this is the Scouted Football Podcast. It's episode 19 and at the end of 2019, for our very good friends over at Football Manager, uh, we compiled a scouted football thread of under 23 players for you to sign in-game, which I thought was a really cool idea and really cool feature and yeah, listed some, some really interesting players on there. That thread is still on our Twitter account if you want to check it out, Uh, but we thought Seeing as it did so well and the winter update for Football Manager has just dropped, we'd very much like to immortalise it in podcast form. I mentioned just then that we compiled the FM thread, where in fact the vast majority of the credit uh, should be going to Scouted's very own Lou Davies. Uh, He was the brains behind the operation and put together that lovely thread, um, which is as good an in as any to introduce the man himself to this week's episode. Uh, Lou, how, how are things in sunny Wales? Hi Joe. Yeah, it's not well. It's not particularly sunny. It's a bit rainy and wet as always. But apart from that, everything's okay. I'm looking forward to the next round of Champions League games. I'm perennially disappointed by Arsenal, so nothing's changed really. Well, I mean, a, a two 0 win over the mighty Pompey last night will uh, will have uh, allayed any sort of disappointment there. I'm sure. I'm sure it'll come as it'll come as no surprise to to any of you that, that all of us have scouted either are or or have been avid football manager players for for many many years. I think personally, I've racked up far too many hours than I'd care to admit. Um, somewhere in the thousands, not seeing how many. Uh, and I'm, I'm guessing you're very much the same, Lou. Well, yeah, I definitely used to be. I know people probably won't want to hear this, but for the past couple of editions, I've struggled to get into it really. I'm not sure why. I think I've got a bit more responsibility elsewhere. I've got a bit less free time. But yeah, and it sort of contradicts my involvement with creating these FM squads for scouted football. But football manager 13 to 17 was probably my pomp in the game. Going through my latter days of school education with sixth form and going into uni. So I had a lot of free time then. And especially living where I live in West Wales, cold, rural, especially over the winter months when there's not much to do here. So a lot of my evenings were spent on football manager, were dominated by football manager to to be truthful. I also used to be quite active on the FM forums back in the day. So I was pretty engrossed by the whole community aspect of it. I was pretty engrossed by actually documenting my saves and almost profiling players to a sort sort of far lesser extent than I do now. But I really enjoyed like documenting everything following the progression of my players and stuff like that. I mean, you say you were in, in West Wales, but I mean, I'm sure there were some Champions League nights at the San Siro and the Santiago Bernabeu uh, among those among those dreary nights in, in Wales. Um, I mean, it wouldn't be an, an FM-themed podcast episode without the two of us divulging our greatest saves. And Lou, you mentioned the that your heyday in the game was probably FM 13 to 17 um, on the various editions. And I'd say mine was pretty much the same. And seeing I've sprung this question on you, uh, I'll go first and, and harp on for the next 15 minutes about my FM13 Blackpool save, in which took them from 
lower reaches of the championship on a shoestring budget to Premier League champions, one of my finest achievements. Um, that was before taking the natural step uh, to become Brazil manager 13 seasons into the game, uh, which gives you an indication of how much that save meant to me uh, ahead of the 2026 World Cup, despite speaking, of course, no Portuguese. Um, but, you know, football's universal language, what can I say? I hope I've given you ample time to think of, you know, your best or most rewarding save, Lou. I mean, is it one going down in the annals of football manager folklore or, or are you going to tell us you won six back-to-back titles with Arsenal? A lot of my football manager life is sort of documented in screenshots. So I've got them all saved on my computer and stuff. So I went back last night and looked through it and there's some really fun saves in there that I can remember. I sort of, because I got into football manager around 2010, before that, I was playing FIFA Manager, which is the inferior game, but I sort of, I'm not sure why I was playing it. But yeah, so getting into it, 2010, I had the Arsenal teams with Fabregas, Van Persie, Nasri, Ramsey, and I remember having a couple of successful saves with them. I remember taking like really quite embarrassing pride in the way that they progressed, like the players progressed and won individual awards. If I had to pinpoint one save in particular, though, I think I'd go back to Football Manager 2016. Joe, you you know me a little bit. You might get you might pick it up for my personality, but I'm a bit of a stickler for detail and realism. So, and it was around the time that Thomas Tuchel and Julian Nagelsmann were first getting into first coming to prominence as coaches, high level coaches, with little to no pedigree as a player. So I started off at Hoffenheim's Vai in the Regional Liga. Within the season, I got them up to the Dritte Liga, which is the third division of German football. I had Dennis Geiger. Obviously, he's moved up to the first team in real life now. And Robin Hack, and I moved them up into the first team as well in the game. After that season, I went to Red Bull Salzburg. I won the league and cup double there in successive seasons. Then I made another step up to the Bundesliga mid-season after Mainz sacked Martin Schmidt. So then within that season, I think the first season was staving off relegation, like proper really relegation battle, trying to eke out 1-0 wins, draws away at Bayern Leverkusen. And Dor- I remember one draw away at Bayern Munich, one all, I think. I scored an 88th-minute equaliser. And then the second season, I really built on my on the firm footings that I built for myself. I had some really nice recruits from the Austrian and Swiss leagues, which I thought was quite realistic. And and then I also remember a couple of really fun new gens, one called Tunchay Aras, a little Turkish striker who absolutely ripped it up on loan at Achten Sexy München in the Zweite Bundesliga then. And he came back the next season and scored, did, did what he did for them, for me. So that was a really fun save. Hoffenheim Zwei, I mean, that is the ultimate hipster FM save that, you, that you're starting out with there. Uh, but yeah, I mean, yeah, being a stickler for realism, I suppose it's, it's not a hindrance, it's kind of a benefit when, you, when it comes to the game because, you know, that's what makes it stand out above the rest. Um, and I mean, we've probably got a great deal to thank FM for because because one of the most exciting aspects of the game is, is of course, developing young players either through your academy or blooding them in your squad as you go from season to season or even just snapping up a highly rated exotic regen or new gen if we're using the correct terminology and, and then him turning into the second coming of, I don't know, like 
Hatem Ben Arthur or R9 Ronaldo or someone. It's probably what inadvertently got me quite interested in in sort of the real life version of spotting young players and, and scouting young players and, and ultimately why why we do what we do at Scouted. Um, I mean, you can disagree with me <laughs> and my love letter, the football manager here completely. Uh, but would you say you share a little bit of that sentiment, Lou? Yeah, no, absolutely. Like the whole, as I mentioned previously, I sort of got into profiling my saves and documenting everything that went on. So it gave me a real background, not a background, but a sort of experience in writing about football. And especially from playing the game, when you when you watch your players progress and you use the different filters to find different players, I think it has a real a real link to the way that re- that um real life football processes happen and I remember I was on Twitter the other day and I think I saw Stop Bunching so he's a he's a analyst who set up market insights with a another group of analysts on Twitter good follows you should follow them and he said that he got into the entire data analysis and profiling and scouting players through football manager or championship manager as it was it's a proper gateway into doing what we do at Scouted Football essentially This this is of course the Scouted Football podcast. Um, you know, based on discussing under twenty three players, interesting teams, interesting young coaches, that sort of thing. Um, and seeing as we've intertwined today's episode with uh, Football Manager, we're going to get stuck into the squad of players that I mentioned earlier uh, that Lou picked out to use in game, and um, but also why they're exciting players in the flesh in, in real life too, and sort of the progress that they have made over the past few months um, and sort of their career stories. Naturally, we're going to start with the goalkeeper, and he's a La Masia boy, uh, Iñaki Peña of Barcelona. Uh, I'm not great with my keepers, so Lou, how, how you how have you described him, and, and why have you why have you done so in, in that little thread? So, just before we start, I want to preface it a little bit by saying, as I mentioned previously, I haven't really gotten into the past two football manager games, so a lot of these players have been picked on what I know of them in real life. So I've Obviously, being involved with Scottish football, I watch a lot of football as is. So these are players that I've picked up and I've thought that would probably be good in the game and they've turned out to be good in the game. So it's all based on reality rather than their in-game attributes largely. Yeah, in the case of Iñaki Pena, Barca B player, 21 years old, goalkeeper for the past two seasons. He's played a lot in Segunda B with Barca B. He's also been involved with the first team quite a bit on the bench, yet to make his debut. But if people do know him, it will probably be as part of the under-19 team that won the UEFA Youth League back two seasons ago, 2017-2018. And that team included Juan Miranda, Alex Collado, Ricky Puig, Carles Perez, obviously who's gone to Roma now, Abel Ruiz, who's at uh, Braga. And they beat the Chelsea team, which had Rhys James, Callum Hudson-Odoi, the Sean Redden, Conor Gallagher. So you've you've listed him in the tweet uh, as as a front foot keeper. What do we mean by that? What is a front foot goalkeeper? I think when I use that term, I refer to someone who's proactive with and with and without the ball. So someone who can distribute incisively and build up, who can make decisive decisions and coming off his line and attacking the ball in open spaces and helping to relieve the pressure 
off their defenders, especially when he's coming off his line and coming out of his box to sweep up behind the defence. So I'm not entirely dissimilar to what Tostegan does or Edison or even Alisson. I think, from what I've watched anyway, that Pena is definitely akin to those players in the way that he approaches the position of goalkeeper. I think he's quite a, a decisive distributor. Like He's quick to spot open players, spot isolations especially, and he's really adept at trying to find them with either chipped passes out to out wide or quick throws between lines. So he's very much the modern day goalkeeper and very much a Barca goalkeeper. You can see that he's come through La Masia. Do you think that's something that's becoming more and more mainstream in goalkeeper coaching and particularly at bigger clubs like like Barcelona, like, like at La Masia academies? Yeah, absolutely. I think... Manuel Neuer at Bayern München has really is a big reason for how the expect, expectations of a goalkeeper have shifted quite dramatically in the past decade or so. I'm a goalkeeper myself, so I have a bit of experience, obviously not to the level that these guys do, of experiencing how the position has changed. I remember playing back in my school days that the onus was definitely more on me to come out of my box and attack loose balls and sweep up behind the defenders so the goalkeeper position from top to bottom has shifted in its onus quite significantly but now everything's all about progression all about being proactive and confident in your decision making with and without the ball moving quickly on to right back and we have a swiss player there uh, playing for st gallen uh, sylvan hefty uh, who's a club captain at 22 in real life of course um and we have a bit of pedigree of having a soft spot for swiss fullbacks having included kevin and babu in, in volume 1 of last year's handbook i mean i don't know very much about hefty other than he's got a great name and he's swiss so i'm going to let lou lead the way on on this one i mean who is he why is he why is he a good pick for for an fm save so essentially, Sylvan Hefty has been a first team regular at FC St. Gallen since I think it was the 2016 2017 season. So, back when he was 17 years old, he broke into the team fairly soon in that season and sort of hasn't looked back since. He's more or less played every single minute since his debut. He's closing in on 200 appearances. Obviously, he's been club captain since the start of last season. Nominally a right-back now, but he did play centre-back quite often, especially last season. I think he's played on the right on the right-hand side of a back three as well, which suits him, which we'll get onto in a minute. He's a Swiss youth international, yet to make his senior debut. I don't think he's even been in a squad yet, but obviously, as you mentioned, Switzerland have quite substantial depth at that position with Kevin and Babu. Uh, Michael Lang, uh, Stefan Lichsteiner, obviously, who's 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 waning, but still involved, and obviously Nico Alvedi, who can play that position too. So, so Saint Gallen are challenging for the Swiss title at the moment, um, having only won it on two previous occasions in in nineteen oh four and and again in two thousand. I mean, given that he's club captain, how much influence do you think that Hefty's skill set has had on on this title tilt? Maybe that versatility in in being able to play multiple positions, or is he just a big character? I it would be a lie for me to say that I'm overly familiar with this St. Gallen side, but from what I've watched Hefty individually, I think he really 
sort of epitomizes and personifies the way that they play. So they play high press, really mobile across the pitch. They shut down players quickly and they tra- and they transition really quickly. And Hefty is pretty much the embodiment of that. If I was to brand him as a player, I'd say that he's just very dependable. I think obviously he's played almost every minute since his breakthrough. He's pretty much solid in every phase down the right-hand side. He's a decent defender, probably one of the best young defenders in the league. He's a solid passer. He can do a fair bit in the final third. I also quite like him as a ball carrier from deep. So he'll he'll win the ball back or a teammate close to him will win the ball back. And he's basically on his bike, essentially, straight away. And he'll get the ball and he'll carry upfield. He'll try and beat a man. He's not very efficient with it. But it's more about the the intent rather than the outcome. So that is the right back spot covered. Uh, and just switching over to the other side, of course, we are going to play four at the back. Um, and at left back, we've got Owen Weindahl. Um, Lou, you love you love AZ and and with good reason. Um, well, I mean, well, the likes of Miran Boadu and Calvin Stengs uh, take the majority of the plaudits. Uh, Vindal is really exciting, impressive attacking wing back, um, and sort of I could say, kind of based on how you've described Hefty, there he mirrors him to to a certain extent, uh, maybe a bit more attacking. Uh, Vindal is, um, but yeah, he's he's an he's a Netherlands under twenty one international of uh, Surinamese descent. And he's been really relied upon this season. Games coming thick and fast for RZ in, in the Eredivisie and sort of a little title push that they've got going on there and also in the Europa League. But yeah, he's been up to the task and, and he's barely missed a game in, in what you could describe as, as his breakout season, really. In in comparison to the, the two fullbacks, how similar would you say their styles are? So when I compile these squads, I try and be balanced with my teams. I try and set them up, well not set them up, but I try and pick them to be compatible with each other. So I think with Hefty, he's a he's a solid defender. And on the other side then with Vindal, I think I've picked a a player who's more adept in the final third, who's a bit more polished technically, who can do a bit more with the ball. So I think it's quite a good matchup of skill sets. So in regards to Vindal Obviously, this is still his first Eredivisie season, so I think he's played. He played a couple of games last season. He played a few. He made a few appearances the year before, but this season, he's really usurped Thomas Ovian as the starting left back for RZ. Obviously, he's another prominent product of the RZ Academy. He follows in the footsteps of Calvin Stengs, Myron Boado, obviously, who you mentioned. And he sort of precedes another another good group of young players coming through, which include Kenzo Goodmine and uh, Mohamed Tabouni, who was at the under-17 Euros, was it, with the Netherlands, who won, won that tournament. Also, another quite a nice little subplot to Vindal's inclusion in this squad is in the past two squads, respectively, I picked Calvin Stengs and Myron Boadu, so it's sort of a continuation of the RZ theme. With in the respect with respect to those two, just before I picked them in the squad, both of them suffered season ending injuries. So it was a bit of a bummer. But now thankfully Vindal hasn't followed suit in that regard. 
Um, an interesting aspect to Vindal in-game, and also in real life, of course, is that his agent is the infamous uh, Mino Raiola. So that's obviously going to throw up some issues if you try and sign him on Football Manager in the way of agent fees, no doubt. But I suppose what we're really interested in, also in real life too, for the obvious reason that you know he's going to try and get the best deal for himself and his client financially, how much of a bearing on Vindal's future do you think Raiola will, will have, given his track record with you know, sort of other promising young players under his representation. And, you know, the I mean, the saga with Gianluigi Donnarumma springs to mind. Yeah, I think he'll certainly have an impact, obviously, as he does with basically all of his players. Just see what he did with Mateich de Ligt last summer going to Juventus. The interesting snippet to this Raiola situation with Vindal is uh, Myron Boadu and Calvin Stengs are also re- represented by him. So it sort of throws up a, a situation where all three could leave for big teams at the same time this summer. But I th- I think it's far more likely that Myron Boadu and Calvin Stengs are the two that will really be placed at a, at a big team this summer, especially with their probable involvement in the Euros following the injuries to Memphis Depay and Daniel Marlin. I think the point of interest will be how aggressive Raiola is with moving them. So I think I've seen Boadu and Stengs linked to Juventus, which is obviously the path that he chose to move De Ligt down last summer. Uh, I think Boadu and Stengs are well-placed for a move to a big team, whereas with Weindahl, I think another season in the Eredivisie would probably serve him quite well. I think... Maybe if he stays at RZ might, with the depleted squad, it might stunt him a little bit. But I think the step that would make quite a bit of sense would be to move him to Ajax for a season where he can play European football. He can play with quite a high level of teammate, even though that they're losing Hakim Ziyech and so I'm probably Donny van der Beek this summer. But I think a st- another step between RZ and the top five league would serve Vindal quite well for where he is now in his development. So that is the two fullback positions decided, uh, which leaves us the two centre-back slots. Uh, and we have an Englishman and a German in there. Um, one that is very close to my heart is is Ben White, um, that, that you've picked for this one, who I personally believe is, is a future England centre-back, which some might say is a big call, but some might agree uh, wholeheartedly. But, you, you know, he's a progressive passer, solid defensively, um, and currently, uh, under Marcelo Bielsa at Leeds, being mentored by you know one of the game's greats, um, so you'd imagine he'll be one of the more expensive players in this list, uh, both in game and, and in reality, given the likelihood that he's going to remain at Brighton for the foreseeable future when his loan deal expires. Lou, you've got a, a bit of a soft spot for for Calvin Phillips at Leeds. Um, is is Ben White sort of the the centre back equivalent for you? Uh, I'd say so. Yes, I was sort of. I wasn't really aware of Ben White coming into this season. His name didn't really ring any bells, and I was, and I'm normally quite attentive to the young players coming through, even throughout the EFL. Obviously, he spent a, se- a was it a season or six months at Newport County in Wales in League Two, and then he went last season in January to Peterborough in League One on loan. But I still, even then, I wasn't really aware of him. I hadn't heard him. I hadn't really read about. I hadn't really read about his name anywhere. But once I watched him 
I immediately took to him, especially in the lead in this Leeds team, in the way that Bielsa wants to play. I think he's become really integral to the way that they not only defend, but the way that they construct attacks and build out from the back. I think playing for Bielsa is sort of a, a poison chalice. It can be both really easy because the level of coaching and structure and patterns of play is really high comparative to the championship, but also the demands that he puts on the players, the, expect, the expectations he has of them in pretty much every phase of play are just extraordinary for the level too. In the case of Ben White and Calvin Phillips, I think both have more than satisfied Bielsa, and I think it's I think that's fairly obvious in the way that he almost eulogizes them and picks them every week and how integral they are to the way that Leeds play. For me, I think the thing that really stands out is I love how composed he is in pretty much everything that he does regardless of the circumstance or the situations. So he looks totally in control of whatever he does, defending spaces behind him, competing in physical duels with big championship strikers who can bully even the biggest centre-backs. I know you really like him as well. You obviously profiled him in the handbook. And as you touched on there, he doesn't really look like a a centre-back who should be not dominant, but as comfortable as he is in the championship. But I think that sort of endears him even more to me like he wears gloves short sleeves and gloves and he just doesn't look like the big burly centre-back that should do as well as he's doing I think in large part that's testament to the way that he reads the game and his composure when he's reading the game he makes quick decisive decisions he doesn't particularly dive in he adjusts his positions really well relative to the ball and the opponent so I think he's just a really accomplished defender then on top of that, he's a he's a positive and valuable passer in build-up phases. All in all, he's just a really well-rounded centre-back. And I think it's only a matter of time before a big move happens for him, probably into a, as we'll touch on in a bit, I think, into a top six team in the Premier League. And I think he's an England centre-back in waiting. Uh, Lou, you've just touched on it there. Um, and on the previous episode of the pod, I briefly discussed where I felt Ben White's future would lie. Um, but I, I suppose you, you've made them quite clear there and that you think, you know, he is a, he's an England centre-back in waiting and, and that, you know, he will eventually get a move to a, to a top six club. I mean, what are your thoughts on his immediate future beyond, beyond this season with, with Leeds? As I alluded to, I think it's only a matter of time before he gets a, a move to a big club. I think... A sort of, an interesting situation could arise if Leeds come up and Brighton go down. Then it sort of throws up a, a scenario where Leeds will have the money to buy him. Brighton won't have the security of the Premier League to try and keep him. And maybe another year at Leeds would suit, ev- well, not everyone, but Bielsa and White especially. Obviously, I'm on Twitter quite a lot, so I follow Phil Hay, an iconic Leeds reporter. And he's mentioned that Liverpool have been watching him regularly. I think one of their head of recruitment or head of uh, domestic scouting has been at a lot of Leeds games this season watching Ben White. So in terms of that fit, Liverpool, they obviously have Joe Gomez. So I think it's sort of an awkward fit with Joe Gomez there. Obviously, they're looking for a partner for Van Dijk. I have no doubts that White would be just lights out next to him. But I'm not sure if the, if that move would benefit him 
as much as say a move to another big six club. I think Chelsea makes a lot of sense. United, Manchester United makes a lot of sense with pairing him with Maguire. So there you'd have a a long-term centre-back partnership that also translates to the English team. Uh, Arsenal makes a lot of sense if they weren't financially crippled by years of incompetent management. Tottenham makes a lot of sense in the way that Vertonghen and Alderweireld, well, not so much Alderweireld's case because he signed a new contract, but especially in Vertonghen's case, he's sort of struggling to attain the levels that he set himself previously. Even Manchester City, to a to a lesser extent, I think, with the uncertainty that they have next to Laporte, I think Ben White would fill that hole really well. I think he's far more reliable than John Stones is, and he offers a similar skill set in possession. Maybe not quite to the level that Stones does, but I think you'd take a little drop off in his ability with the ball if it's made up in defensive quality. I have few doubts that those type of teams will try and make a play for him. And I think I could see it happening this summer. Uh, the other centre-back that we've got in this FM thread uh, is Nico Schlotterbeck, uh, who is an, another good distributor from deep, um, but crucially, aerially very dominant. And Lou, you mentioned uh, some stuff about how you like to keep these these squads quite balanced. And I suppose Schlotterbeck would, would go well with White in the sense that if Schlotterbeck being uh, taller, more aerially dominant, not to say Ben White isn't, but yeah, the, those two could have differing roles in that squad. Um, he currently plays for SC Freiburg in the Bundesliga, uh, working under Christian Streich, um, who most people will recognise as the German coach uh, who was pushed to the ground in that video that went viral a few months ago. I remember quite some time ago you mentioning the name Schlotterbeck to me and I'm fairly sure his name probably stuck in my brain because in the same way as Sylvan Hefty has a good name, Schlotterbeck is also a very memorable name. He hasn't played a great deal this season uh, and as a consequence, I suppose it's been it's been, a, it's been tough to give him a proper appraisal. But as a player to, to acquire on Football Manager, as a player who you've seen uh, over the past few seasons... Why do you feel that Schlotterbeck would be a good pickup on the game? But but also, why is he an interesting player as a whole? Um, so a bit of background first. I first became aware of a Schlotterbeck last season, but it was his brother Kevin, who also played for Freiburg at the time. Now he's on loan at FC Union Berlin in the Bundesliga as well. But he made his debut back about a year ago against Borussia Mönchengladbach. Kevin did. And... I watched the game and I was just really impressed by the way that he not only defended, but the way that he... But yeah, back to the question. Uh, Nico Schlotterbeck, as you mentioned, I like to balance the teams a bit. So, as and as you said, that he's quite aerial, aerially dominant. So, he matches up with Ben White quite well in that regard, even though White himself is very decent in the air, considering his size and stature. But yeah, I think... In terms of picking him up on FM, he's obviously a good pickup, as a lot of these players would be. I think the thing that you'd have to do with FM is move early for him, try and maximise the investment straight away, try and get him for as cheap as you can before he breaks into the first team, which is sort of an inevitability with the way that Christian Streich and Freiburg have established the pathways for the young players young academy players to break into the first team. But yeah, in terms of his skill set, he's a solid defender, 
He's very good on the ball, especially over long distances. So he's left-footed, which is immediately a big bonus because it opens up so many different angles in build-up phases. He has a really nice switch of play. So at the start of this season, he started three games in a row, all for the first time. His first involvement in any sort of first-team football. Before that, he was playing in the Regional Liga with the uh, with the second team. But I remember watching those games back, and I was really impressed by the way that he would switch the point of attack really well. So he'd from the left-hand sided uh, centre back in the back three, he'd switch play to an isolation on the right wing almost effortlessly. So that was an impressive facet of his skill set. I think. As a defender, he's solid as is, but he's got a lot, quite a bit of room to improve, especially with move, fast movements around him. So he can struggle to track runners if they're attacking him from depth or he struggles to adjust his position a little bit. But obviously, he's only 20 years old. He's only got something like 400, 500 Bundesliga minutes to his name. So he's got tons of time to develop and improve and find a a standard of defending that will supplement his ability on the ball. So that just about wraps up the uh, defenders and the goalkeeper section of uh, the FM thread. Um, Just moving on quickly now to the midfielders section. And I suppose we've got a versatile creator, two central midfielders uh, and an attacking midfielder. Um, Lou, I'll leave it to you to to tell me how you're going to structure them in sort of some sort of formation. But just touching on the versatile creator so far, uh, that is Dejan Kulusevski. Uh, and we've discussed him at length over the past few podcasts. You know, his move to Juventus, 35 million euros from Atalanta, um, how well he's done at, at Parma this season on loan in his debut Serie A campaign. And, and also his history um, in the Primavera side for, for Atalanta for two seasons running. Just briefly, you know, a deeper dive into his stats history is that, you know, he was an excellent number eight for Atalanta's Primavera side. But at Parma, he's been an excellent right winger uh, and and a fantastic counter-attacking outlet. We're just going to move over him quite quickly as we've discussed him on previous pods, including the January transfers episode with Phil Costa, if you'd like to listen more about Dijan Kulisevsky. Um, And we're going to go straight into the central midfielders. And the first of which is a Brazilian, and it's Marcos Antonio. Uh, And my note that I've got here is that he's silky, very, very silky. Uh, And that is true. Uh, He's a Brazilian at Shakhtar. Imagine my shock. They've got pedigree for developing young South Americans in Ukraine. And and Antonio's no different. Starting to play more minutes now for for Shakhtar. And and is really starting to establish himself as a a regular first teamer there. Um, Which is which is good and it's rewarding for to see of a player that you know we've tracked for some time since the, the under 17 world cup in 2017 really lou i mean his route to shakhtar has been a bit of a convoluted one um via portugal and, and the like um but so what has his route been to to sort of champions league football and european football essentially yeah so as you mentioned obviously shakhtar the nets have a big pedigree with brazilian talent even though that's probably waning a little bit now with all the turmoil in, in eastern Ukraine with the conflict with Russia. And obviously they're not playing in the Donbass region anymore. They're playing out of Kharkiv. So it's not as secure a pathway as it was, but it's still a pathway. And it's one that Marcus Antonio 
has maybe not picked, but he's been pushed down, and I think it's probably for his benefit. I think the he obviously came from Atletico Paranaense of Bruno Guimaraes fame and Renan Lodi fame and Fernandinho fame even. That's where Fernandinho started, which is a nice parallel to Marcos Antonio. But then he had like a six-month spell in Estoril in the Segunda Liga in Portugal, which was quite a weird move for him because I remember, obviously, at Scottish Football, we cover the the Youth World Cups quite extensively and the European Championships and so on. And the first time that we saw, collectively even, and especially myself, and I remember Stephen Gnavis, obviously head honcho at Scouted, was a big fan of him too. The first time that we saw Antonio was in that tournament, the one that England won, the one that featured the likes of Phil Foden, Ferran Torres for Spain, Juan Miranda for Spain, Maxons Cacare for France and Amin Guiri as well. I think coming out of that with the pedigree that he has with the Brazilian youth teams, the move to Estoril was... I think if I'm being cynical, was probably some sort of deal to satisfy an agent or try and manipulate some sort of finance or cash flow. But he's got to Shakhtar in the end. And I think all in all, it's a good place for him. So since the latter end of last season, as the Ukraine Premier League split into the championship round and relegation rounds, he played... I think it was six games on the trot, so they were bedding him they were bedding him in early, and that sort of carried over to this season. He's played more minutes than he had last season, made more appearances. I think since probably October time he's been starting quite a lot of games. Last week he started his first game in the Europa League, probably the biggest game of his career against Benfica, which Shakhtar came out in top, on top in a really tumultuous end-to-end game it's sort of been as you say it's a convoluted route so far but I think it's a route that will benefit him overall we see plenty of Brazilians make the switch from from eastern to to western Europe after stints at Shakhtar Uh, you obviously you mentioned there Fernandinho being one William being another uh, and Fred for example they all left and and ultimately ended up in in the Premier League out of those three assuming that you know Marcus Antonio will make Shakhtar a mint when, when he does move. Um, out of those three, for anyone who hasn't seen him play, um, who is he closest to in terms of his skill set and, and where could you see, at, at present, where could you see him going to that would suit his skill set? So of those three that you mentioned, Fernandinho, Willian and Fred, I think the the most obvious comparison is to Fred. Although similar position to Fernandinho, but I think Fernandinho is another level of athlete. He's another level of defender. Whereas Marcos Antonio, a bit like Fred, his proper ability in possession. Not saying that Fernandinho doesn't, obviously, but the the owners of the game is what they do with the ball. Whereas Fernandinho is a high level defender as well. I know it sort of doesn't really help anyone if they're not aware with the play that I'm going to mention. But I think he's quite similar to Maxon's Kakare at, at Lyon. They are age group mates and they play to, not together, but they both featured at the Under-17 World Cup back in 2017. But I think they both operate in similar like sort of press-resistant roles in midfield. They're diminutive, 
they've got really nice balance and grace to the way they play. They can shift out of small spaces really well with either passes or they can turn out of pressure and burst away from opponents. And also they're just really high level passes. So in the case of Marcos Antonio, he's always trying to play forward. He's always taking positive touches to get the ball out of his feet and he's trying to uh, he's trying to break lines with his passing and he plays with good tempo and vision and just a nice continu- continuity to the way that he moves the ball and the way that he moves to receive the ball as well. I think that's a big facet of his game. And yeah, I think that's what that's what I really like about him as a player. And I think coming back to the original question, it's sort of quite similar to Fred in that regard. But yeah, I think Marcos Antonio has a big upside as a press-resistant progressive passer and I think it's only a matter of time before he's he's linked with some big moves. While you could say that Marcos Antonio is is more of a diminutive press resistant type player, he in comparison to, to the other central midfielder, uh, Frenchman Boubacari Sumare at Lille, he's a big player with a big engine, um, but obviously playing in the same area of the pitch, but stylistically he's a very, very different player. He has had interest from from a whole host of clubs, um, not least in the Premier League. Um, allegedly, Newcastle United uh, had a €45 million Euro bid turned down by Lille in January. Um, and also, the, the player just simply did not want to go. And who can blame him? Uh, but either, either way, he'd be an excellent pickup for a club of, of that size or, or, or for, for a bigger club uh, in terms of sort of a project to work on. Uh, the assumption is that given that he does have an expiring contract within the next few years, it presents, as you said in, in the uh, the thread, Lou, it presents, it presents a guilt-edged opportunity to steal an, an outstanding talent on a cut-price deal. Uh, assuming that he won't be at Lille for too much longer, given the, the the way that Lille do conduct their business in terms of, you know, they will develop a player and then he'll move on for, for, for bigger money to a bigger club. Where do you see being a good fit for a player with, with of his sort of distinctive skill set, and also what what would you say his his headlining attributes are? Yeah, so in in, in regards to what you mentioned about his contract, it's been misreported. It was misreported earlier in the season by the general press, and obviously the the contract in game doesn't reflect the real life. So in game, he had a contract until this coming summer. I think in real life, it was reported that he was out of contract next summer, but in reality, it's, he's out of contract in two years' time. So Lille have a bit of negotiating power in regards to that. But yeah, in terms of his next move, I think he's the thing with Sumara, he has a really big reputation, which sort of belies his experience and minutes to date. Like I remember last season, he was linked with uh, a move to Manchester City for something like 50 million. Obviously, it's probably agent guff or wherever but i think it's sort of contributed to like a almost a hysteria around him which is doesn't really match up with his ability yet this season he's broken through started every champions league game group stage game for Lille. obviously they were knocked out he's played four times as many minutes in general he's been pretty much an ever present in league and up until that reported move to Newcastle, as you mentioned, fell through because he didn't want to move. I think lot, uh, I think Lille have not punished him, but they've pushed him out of the team a little bit since then as a reaction to him rejecting that move. But yeah, I think given the numbers that have been thrown around and 
the negotiating power that Lille still have, the only move that makes sense is one to the is is one to the Premier League, and I don't think it should be Newcastle either. I don't think that the fit works very well there at all. I think Newcastle is sort of a just a train wreck, and as you've seen with Joe Ellington this season, they haven't maximised their investment at all, and they've mismanaged players quite badly. So I wouldn't want him to go to Newcastle, but I think a move that makes sense for everyone would be Wolves. I think they've been linked before, but I think in terms of the structure and the and the patterns of play that Nuno Espirito Santo implements at Wolves, I think the structure there would be really beneficial to Samare. So in terms of his skill set, I think he's been compared to Paul Pogba. I think that's a really lazy comparison, which isn't surprising of the modern day media at all. But I think it's just predicated on his skin colour, his nationality and his position rather than any sort of ability that he has akin to Pogba. I think Sumare is a is a deeper midfielder, capable passer. He can break lines with his passing. He's a accomplished ball carrier. And I think if you put him into that Wolves team, either alongside Jean Moutinho or Ruben Neves, or even in between those two, I think what he would offer in terms of the ability on the ball, a really well-rounded, athletic skill set, I think he'd be a nice fit there, which I don't think it would elevate Wolves to another level, but I think it would elevate him to another level, and I think it would give Wolves a really solid platform to make a big profit off him, even if they sign him for £40 million. I think. He's the type of profile and the type of player with the type of skill set who would quickly get people's attention and translate quite well to an even higher level. Uh, so we've touched on uh, Dijan Kulusevski there and then gone into depth on Marcus Antonio and Bubakari Sumare there as our three, as, as our first three midfielders. Um, the fourth midfielder that we've, that we've got listed here, that you've listed, Lou, uh, is Ebria Easy, of course, at Queen's Park Rangers in the Championship. Uh, and I suppose you won't, I mean, you won't scold me too much for saying that he's probably the EFL's most exciting attacking talent at the moment. You know, creates a great deal of shot assists for teammates. Um, and ultimately, he will eventually land in the Premier League. He's QPR's star prize, and and thus that'll take a sum to prize him away, most likely, both in-game and obviously in, in real life, uh, which, again, is, is the premium that you pay for the young English talent, which, again, is well-reflected in the game. Izzy will be no different, but... Um, Lou, you profiled him in uh, in one of the handbooks over the past year, uh, and you know he's he's a player who kind of burst onto the scene in in terms of the last few seasons um, at QPR. Now playing under Mark Warburton. In terms of moving up to the Premier League, is this summer perhaps the right time for him to move, or do you think that uh, another season in the Championship, perhaps at a club which are going to finish higher up in the table? might be more beneficial to him? Or, or what do you think? Yeah, so as you mentioned, I obviously profiled Eze in the fourth edition of the Scouting Football Handbook. So I've watched a lot of him. And in all honesty, he's one of my favourite players to watch. He's one of the most exciting players that I watch. And it's not disingenuous to say that he's probably the superstar of the entire EFL. I think the only one that can only really compare to him is Said Ben Rama at Brentford. Obviously, he's out of the scouted age range now. He's 24. But 
I think it's he's still someone who we both enjoy watching and you can't deny his level. But yeah, in terms of the next move and whether he should stay for another year at the Championship, I honestly don't think the Championship can do anything more for him. I think the level that he's playing at this season, both in terms of not only contributions in terms of goals and assists for this QPR team, but just his general level of play across the board is just far exceeds anything that, that the Championship can offer. Even if he was playing in the Leeds team, I'd be saying he's far too good for this level. I think Premier League obviously will obviously be the next step. The point of interest will be whether he joins a mid-table side. I think he's been linked to Crystal Palace before. He's been linked to Brighton, maybe. But I, again, I think he's, he exceeds that level even. I think the intelligent thing, especially on behalf of the top half sides, so say Leicester, Arsenal, even Manchester United, Tottenham, I think would be to get him this summer at a fairly reasonable price, say 20 million or something, before he goes to a team like West Ham or Crystal Palace and just and his price will just skyrocket from there. So I think the intelligent thing would be to get him now to skip the middleman, to skip the middle club, even if you're a bit wary of how his skill set will translate. But I think the risk and reward is the reward far weighs the risk. Do you think he enjoys being sort of the main man around Loftus Road at the moment? Do you think that that would perhaps change if he went to a, a club, perhaps like like a mid-table club like Crystal Palace, like you mentioned there? Do you think that he'd benefit from being out of the limelight a little bit more? Or how do you think he'd react to, to sort of being in, in the press a lot more as a Premier League player? Because obviously at present, he's... Apart, I mean, to us, he's kind of the centre of the universe, but to the mainstream media in the UK, you know, he's very much, you know, out of the picture simply because he plays for for a mid-table championship club. How do you think he'd react to sort of that change in environment off the pitch? Well, I can't really speak for him as a person. The only thing I can say is um, Tom Kershaw of The Independent did a nice piece with him, a nice interview with him a couple of months ago where he spoke about um, how he was rejected constantly at youth level and how he was misrepresented as a lazy player when he was just confident and confident in his own ability. And just because he had a really nice ability, he had a really uh, transcendent ability in possession, coaches often thought that he um, never applied himself without the ball, but he said it himself and I'd agree with him from what I've seen in the championship that that just doesn't represent the reality at all. In regards to the question whether he'd suit the limelight, I think he has probably has the personality to handle it. I think you can see the personality that he plays with in, in games in the championship. He gets kicked all over the place, but he just gets up, carries on. He has visibly has a lot of fun, especially he's got a, two teammates there, uh, Ilyas Che and Bright Ose Samuel, where they've come up sort of in the same youth team together similar backgrounds, similar ages, and you can see the amount of fun that they have with each other playing. So, I again, I'd have no worries about how he would, how his personality would transition to the Premier League. Even if his role was more reserved than it is now at QPR, at QPR now he's the catalyst for everything, everything creative, the way that he drives from deep, the way that he, he gets into scoring positions, the way he creates for others. But I think he'd be a really a really valuable supplementary piece. A bit similar to what Alex Iwobi was at Arsenal. I think Alex Iwobi was vastly underrated for what he did at Arsenal. 
people have started to realise just how good a player he is now at Everton. But I think Eze could fulfil a similar role at a big club and would thrive in it, I think. We're coming to the end of our FM Thread squad, um, as you may have guessed, given that we've now completed all the midfielders. And the two more attacking players that we have listed here, of course, players that are exceptionally talented, um, but also have bags and bags of potential. They're two players who, when, Lou, you compiled this uh, thread, they were currently playing their trade at different clubs. Now they've both had January moves and ultimately are now very, very much in the, in the limelight in, in world football. One is playing for Real Madrid, albeit the Castilla side, and one is playing in the Champions League, pulling up trees uh, for Borussia Dortmund. And I suppose, given that brief introduction there, it won't take too much for you to decipher who I'm talking about. Um, the first one, of course, is the Brazilian uh, Renier, a teenager who has made that that fairy tale switch to Real Madrid, um, who again we we discussed on on uh, the tr- January transfers podcast episode with Phil Costa, um, and I suppose you know who doesn't love it when you stumble across a Brazilian regen who bags goals for fun, um, you know it's football manager heritage. Yeah, Renier isn't a regen or a new gen. Very real, made a lot of noise of late at Flamengo, and yes, he's very neat feet, good trickery. Um, there's comparisons been made to Kaká. You know, signed by Real Madrid at the age of 18, you know, just rattling off these little snippets, just it excites you to think, you know, what his potential may be. In Football Manager, given the winter update, he's now going to be way too expensive uh, to, to afford, unless you've got an unlimited budget, given that he signed for Real Madrid for 25 million euros. Um, but, you know, he's moved into that Castilla side and he's going to be playing football regularly, you'd hope, uh, under Raul Gonzalez there. But if you want to hear more about Renier, then we go into depth on his move to Real uh, and, and sort of his potential uh, over the next few years in that pod episode with Phil Costa. And of course, the other striker, well, the striker, the freakish forward, I think is how we've labelled it on the thread, uh, is none other than, of course, Erling Braut Haaland. Um, who people are bound to be sick of us talking about on this podcast, but he is just so, so good. We're not going to stay on him for too long, um, as we are running out of time, unfortunately. Um, But for those of you who love our gushing praise of Haaland, um, we will still be banging on about him until July 2024, when he'll still just be 23, which is terrifying given what he's done in the game already. And I suppose... Just coming full circle, it shows the magnitude of his achievements in in such a short period of time that at the time that you drafted the FM thread, Lou, you know he was still at FC Red Bull Salzburg, and yes, albeit he was he was dominating that league, but had only just burst onto the global scene thanks to his you know Champions League exploits against Genk, Napoli, and Liverpool. Fast forward a few months to now to March, and he's well and truly a household name in the footballing world, much like Kylian Mbappe. Uh, became in 2017 so it's great to see that it's really rewarding to see that and it's exciting to see what he's going to be capable of um we did also compile an entire substitutes bench of players however we don't want to bore you with a three hour long episode uh, of this podcast so if you would like to check out that subs bench uh, you can find that on on the initial fm thread um i'll just list the names now uh, we've got luca unbehaun uh, who's a german goalkeeper mohamed salisu who's a ghanaian center back who is profiled in the latest volume of the scouted football handbook um 
Andrea left back uh, Ryan Aid Nouri, um, Ashraf El Madioui, who's a Dutchman at AS Trenchin, uh, Josh De Silva, another profiled in the latest handbook, who's at Brentford, um, Gonzalo Plata, Ecuadorian winger uh, at Sporting Club de Portugal. And of course, the Canadian bagsman, uh, Jonathan David. Yeah, we're not going to make you go hunting high and low for that Twitter thread. We will attach it to the description of this episode. But just to wrap up, Lou, it's been it's been great recording with you today. Um, and I won't keep you from the winter update too much longer if this has kind of wet your appetite. Um, but yeah, thanks for, thanks for joining me anyway. Thank you, Joe. It's been a pleasure to be back on. I hope it wasn't too bad or too shambolic, but I enjoyed running through the squad with you and hopefully people will enjoy it no it's a great thread and it's it's a great little tidbit of information that we that we do on on a sort of a regular annual basis just before we go do you have any sort of scouted related news for everybody to to look out for or anything we're working on in the pipeline so obviously the the new hand the new handbook is out volume five all i'd say is just please support it because the amount of work that goes into it from top to bottom from editors, writers, illustrators is absolutely insane. I'm privileged enough to be involved with it and I'm privy to the amount of work that goes on behind the scenes and the, the number of hours that goes into it is just insane. And I'd also like to say that we're going to be pushing more content on the on the website. So obviously you had last week, you had a nice a nice piece on the, the Japanese youth revolution in, in Europe with the likes of Takefusa Kubo and Takumi Minamino and showing how that they're sort of dispelling the stereotypes around Japanese players. And in the next week or so, I might be writing a piece on Mikhail Karbovnik, a little left back from Legia Warszawa. I think we're probably going to have another few pieces coming out on some archived pieces. So all in all, there's tons of stuff coming out of scouted football which should be interesting and well worth your time very nice yeah the, do do check out uh, the website for you know brand new independent articles on the world of under 23 football well we'll just going to leave it there for this week um, if you do enjoy our work please consider supporting us by buying a book at sfhandbook.com uh, or just simply by engaging with us on twitter or instagram or facebook or anywhere that we have our content we appreciate it all enormously as it goes a long way towards helping us you know continue bringing you even better stuff in 2020 um again as always if you've got any feedback or thoughts for us please don't hesitate to get in touch uh, dm us tweet us leave a review we'd love to hear your thoughts that's all for now we've been the scouted football podcast bye bye <laughs>